do you remember the trumpets? We're still talking about the trumpets. We started two weeks ago. The trumpets that sound back through space and time at the opening of the seventh seal on the seven-sealed scroll in the right hand of God. And I'd like, to pick, I'd like to pick up right where we left off. Hopefully, you remember this picture. The last time I said, imagine that this is a soul, one lonely soul. The Lord makes a soul with dust from the earth and breath from himself. He says, do not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, for the day that you eat of it, dying you will die. And the devil tempts the soul, saying, dying, surely dying you will not die, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The soul takes knowledge of the good, and God alone is good. The, the soul takes knowledge of the good from the tree and becomes self-conscious. For now the soul knows that it is not good. It's alone. Before the fall, God said it is not good for Ha'adam, the man, to be alone. A self-conscious soul is conscious of its own pain and pleasure. A self-conscious soul grows a self-conscious body that only feels its own pain and pleasure. It's called the flesh. My flesh only knows its own pain and pleasure. Adam and Eve took from the tree in the middle of the garden and became self-conscious or self-centered. And so they hid themselves from God in the trees of the garden. And they hid themselves from each other with leaves from the trees in the garden. Each tried to save the self from God and from the other. They made clothes. Clothes are like a wall behind which you hide, safe and alone. The, the Lord, necessary right now, I might say, but, but the Lord found the man and the woman and kicked them out of the garden and barred their way to the tree of life in the middle of the garden, lest they eat of the tree or continue to eat of the tree and remain forever the way that they were alone. He kicked them out of the garden and cursed the world. Perhaps creation had already been subjected to futility. Whatever the case, the curse is like God's first act of redemption. It means that even Adam could not endlessly hide behind walls of their own making, their own construction. They could not remain endlessly alone. Now imagine the surface of the earth covered with a world of these self-conscious and anxious, anxious souls. Suppose that two of them formed an alliance, realizing that they could each best protect their own self-interest from the self-interest of others with a wall around them both. Now, if they didn't just protect the self, but sacrifice the self, something truly otherworldly could happen. But now we're kind of getting ahead of the game. Sometimes several individuals form a contract to secure self-interest, and that's called a family or a clan or a tribe. They develop traditions and rituals with which they create walls. Sometimes they go to war, or oftentimes, maybe usually, they go to war with other tribes with different traditions and, and, and rituals. If several of these tribes live in one location, they call it a city. And they create laws in order to protect individual rights. Rights is usually a code word for self-interest. Laws are walls of protection. Some walls are better than other walls, and yet, of course, they're still walls. In ancient times, they would actually build a stone wall around each city. The first act of open rebellion, remember, after the fall against a specific command of God is building a city. Cain is commanded to wonder the face of the earth, and instead he builds a city. Jericho was a Canaanite city. Canaanite city. 
As we've noticed several times uh, preaching through the Revelation, the Revelation is like a recapitulation or a retelling of the entire Bible, and in particular, the story of the fall of Jericho, Jericho on the edge of the Promised Land, which was a, a picture of, of Eden. You remember that it was on the seventh day, the seventh time around us, the seven priests blew the seven trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant. It was, it was then that the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. In the Revelation, at the opening of the seventh seal, as the high priest makes atonement, the seven angels begin to blow the seven trumpets and the walls of the cosmos this world start tumbling down. As the first four trumpets sound, we watch what appears to be natural disasters. As the last three trumpets sound, we watch some even more troubling disasters, and all these disasters, they appear to be the result of our prayer. <laughs> Remember? Our prayer that we prayed as we watched the uh, high priest make atonement. Our, our prayer, God save! Save us, God! We often pray God save, but we're often not so clear as to what it is that God is saving us from. Scripture is pretty clear about what is God is saving us from. God's saving us from our own bad judgment. What the Bible calls sin. Our bad judgment which causes us to construct walls and remain alone. It is not good for Ha-Adam to be alone. Not good is evil. And it's ironic, isn't it? We think we're saved by walls but maybe we need saving from walls. As Israel crossed the Jordan, you remember um, they uh, met this, this strange man. As they prepared to enter the Promised Land and conquer Jericho, uh, they met the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army, the God-man, the Word of God, who is the judgment of God. And he's not on the side of the Israelites or the Canaanites, but he has a drawn sword. He's going to war, but he's not going to war against people. He's going to war against the walls. Inside the walls of Jericho is a Canaanite harlot named Rahab. She is the super great, 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 great grandma of Jesus. And outside the walls is a Jew named Salmon. He is the super great, 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 great grandpa of Jesus. Salmon and Rahab will enter into a covenant that is a picture of the covenant between Christ and his church, his body, a covenant of communion. It's not a covenant of self-interest, but a covenant of self-sacrifice. They will commune and produce a life named Boaz, and eventually a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a, in a manger in Bethlehem right outside the walls of Jerusalem. I'm saying that the body of Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army, and the one who's giving this vision to John, the body of that Jesus is literally dependent upon the destruction of those walls. But not just the destruction of the walls of Jericho, but all dividing walls that divide one person from another person and all persons from God. For this is the plan for the fullness of time, writes Paul, to anakephalio, to bring together under one wounded head all things in Christ Jesus. We're the body of Christ. I think it's this incredibly astounding and wonderful, amazing truth that the modern American church has pretty much entirely missed. We're not like the body of Christ. It's not a metaphor. We are the body of Christ. In fact, everybody that's anybody is most truly Christ's body. Righteousness is literally putting him on like a garment, as Paul describes in Colossians and, and Ephesians. It's putting off the old man and putting on the new man, just like Rahab put on Salmon 
and gave birth to life. Salmon literally means garment or covering. Well, anyway, the trumpets are sounding, Bride of Christ, and the walls of this world are crashing down. Is that bad news or good news? Kind of depends on your perspective, right? Depends on your hope. Romans 8.20, creation was subjected to futility in hope. Hope of what? Well, last time we observed uh, that when human judgment reigns in the human soul, it looks something like, like this. Self-consciousness, self-interest, shame, anxiety, fear. It's a soul preoccupied with its own safety and never sacrifice. But when God's judgment comes to reign in a human soul, it looks something like this, and it's called love. Now imagine the surface of the earth, uh, of the new earth, covered with a world of these unselfconscious and loving souls. I think it would look something like, like this, not six billion lonely souls only banding together to protect their individual rights and thereby preserve their own death, but six billion cells all interconnected by one judgment, sacrificing themselves as one life in one body, the body of Christ. You can think of each red line as a nerve or, or a blood vessel circulating logos and, and life in one happy body, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the kingdom of God manifesting on the surface of the earth. Jesus came, 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 came preaching. John preached this. Jesus preached this. He came preaching, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent does not mean try harder. Metanoia means change your noia or your noose, your mind, your, your, your thinking. It means something like, wake up! Wake up! The kingdom of heaven, it's right here. It's at hand. If you only had eyes to see. Do you see it? Can you even conceive of it, Jerusalem and Jericho? Or do you only see the walls. Revelation 8.1, this is what we talked about last time, the first four trumpets sound, and it's like all creation turns against us. Weather, mountains, sun, moon, stars, they seem to turn against humanity as if to destroy our illusion of control and expel us from this world like a baby from a womb or a butterfly that breaks free from a, the walls of its cocoon. And then 13, we read this. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. Let me paraphrase. Woe to those who consider Jericho to be their home. And woe to those who consider their home to be Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to, to, to torment. So, so God doesn't torment here, but he allows it. They were allowed to torment them for five months. I understand that's like the average lifespan of a locust. Anyway, they're allowed to torment for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. 
In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Apollyon means destroyer. Uh, the first woe has passed. Look, two woes are still to come. People have had all sorts of theories as to the identity of these locusts. Some have argued that they're Arabs. Some have argued that they're Catholics, released by the Pope, who seems to have a key to the bottomless pit, I guess. Some, usually Catholics, have said, no, these are Lutherans. Watch out <laughs> for the Lutherans. Futurists like Hal Lindsey have suggested that they're black cobra helicopters spraying nerve gas from their tails. Preterists point to Ezekiel 9 and the mark placed on the faithful before the first destruction of Jerusalem, saying this must refer to the second destruction of Jerusalem. Preterists often quote Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian. Josephus records that for about five months during the siege of Jerusalem, when the Jews who had rejected Christ and, and his warning to flee the city, when those Jews sealed themselves up behind the walls in order to save themselves from the Romans, he records that um, those Jews were afflicted by roving bands of possessed men who dressed in women's clothing and then raped and murdered their fellow Jews. Men's faces, women's hair, teeth like lions. A plague of possessed Jewish end times cross-dressers or something. You didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> well, no matter what you think of Josephus and his history of the Jews, a, a walled city under siege does become like a, a living hell. These locusts are released from the abyss. They remind us of the plagues upon Egypt. They're described as, as, as just like the locusts in Joel chapters 1 and 2. You can read that, the locusts that accompany the day of the Lord. I doubt this really has anything to do with Jewish cross-dressers, but everything to do with the fact that these locusts can hide behind beautiful female hair. And under the golden crowns of, of kings and behind the faces of the children of Adam, they, they have been released by a star, an angel fallen from heaven. They have as king over them Apollyon, the destroyer. These locusts don't afflict plants, but people. And when they do, I suspect that it looks something like this. <laughs> <laughs> you have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. <laughs> <laughs> I will draw you, Saruman, as poison is drawn from a wound. Wait. If I go, Theoden dies. You did not kill me. You will not kill him. Rohan is mine. Be gone.
I think the locusts in Revelation chapter 9 are demons. And what John saw is what Jesus saw and what Jesus describes in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, says Jesus to the 72 disciples. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall adikeo you, nothing shall, shall harm you. I, I think the locusts are demons. Demons inhabit the places wherein we have believed lies. They tempt us to build walls which separate us from God and from others. We think the walls are salvation, and in reality, they're damnation. They literally damn the flow of blood, and the life is in the blood. We think the walls preserve life, but they're a living death. We think they make heaven, but they are actually a prison that turns into hell. I think the locusts are demons. And at this point, I need to say that my sermon becomes almost impossible for me to preach. Because for some of you, that is an entirely unfamiliar sight. You've never seen anything like that. For others of you, you have maybe even experienced something like that. What Theoden experienced when he was possessed by that spirit in the Lord of the Rings. According to Scripture, we all battle something like that, the thing that afflicted Theoden. We all battle malevolent spirits called demons. Scripture doesn't really use the term possession, but it uses a Greek verb that can best be translated demonized. And if I understand correctly, we're all afflicted or demonized by demons to some extent. However, in some people, a demon or demons can take over the psyche for a time in such a way that the, the demon controls the body of, of its host. I've, I've prayed for innumerable people battling demons, and in a, in a few instances, I've prayed for people that would manifest those demons and react violently to the name of Jesus, which means God is salvation. In every instance, I have realized that most of the lies that the demon speaks are lies that I hear almost every day in my own thoughts. And every lie basically amounts to this. God is not salvation. God does not want to save. Or God is not able to save. In other words, God does not love you, Peter Hyatt. You better hide. In every instance where I've seen a demon manifest in a person, I've also learned that they were horribly abused in their past. And actually, every one of us has been abused to some extent in, in our past, but these friends have been abused to a profound degree, and through the abuse, the demon implanted a lie and then inhabits the lie. It's, it's made me realize that I am utterly incapable of judging anyone, anyone. And it's made me realize that no man or woman is my enemy, but evil is my enemy. It's made me realize that I can't judge anyone and it's given me compassion for everyone. Sinners are not my enemy. They're prisoners of my enemy, afflicted by the very same enemy, trapped by my enemy who, who abuses us all. For, for about 15 years, Susan and I prayed repeatedly for one of these friends. She had been raised by a Satanist, ritually wed to the serpent, and sold as a harlot just like Rahab. She'd been like Rahab, and Jesus revealed that she was and always had been his bride. The bride of Christ. Nothing is more beautiful or pure than the bride of Christ who is the mother of the living. You see, the greatest beauty is revealed in the place of deepest darkness. But now this is important. Verse 4 states that the locusts were only allowed to harm those that didn't have the seal of God on their foreheads. A few weeks ago, we learned that the seal is the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us 
faith, and it's faith that is counted as righteousness. The word translated harm in verse 4 and in Luke 10 is adikeo, from dike, which means righteous or righteousness. Adikeo means something like take away righteousness. Now, in every person in, in which I've witnessed a demonic manifestation, that person has also confessed Christ, which means that they have faith which means that they are sealed. And yet, it seems that they are only sealed, or were only sealed, to the extent that they had faith. In, in other words, the true self was sealed, but not the false self. In other words, the demon would gain access or power through a memory or a portion of their psyche that did not believe God is salvation. Oftentimes, it was a memory of abuse that they had walled off or sealed off, uh, like a, a city under, under siege. They walled off the memory, but in the process, trapped themselves in that memory, believing the lie that God is not salvation, a lie which then manifests as fear and shame, anxiety, isolation, maybe resentment or a refusal to forgive. Demons can only exist in that darkness. Like scorpions and snakes that live underground, demons can only exist in that garbage, in that darkness. But once a person sees the light shining in that darkness, the demon has to flee and cannot return. What my friends have often seen is Jesus in that very place bleeding for them, suffering for them. Well, like I read, Jesus has given us authority over the evil one and his demons, and, and I've used it. <laughs> and it's shocking. I mean, it's really just incredible and a bit mind-blowing, but unless a person has faith in God is salvation, the demon can return to that place that lacks faith. You see, I think that's true for all of us, whether or not a, a demonic spirit ever manifests or not. It's true for all of us that struggle to love our enemies. It's true for all of us that struggle to forgive. It's true for all of us that struggle to believe that God relentlessly loves us and forgives us. It's, it's not an option. Listen to this closely, okay? Because we think it's just like this option. It's not an option that you believe that you trust God's relentless love for you. That's the command of God. And it is the very heart of your battle with the ancient dragon. Ephesians, Paul writes this, we wrestle not, we wrestle not. That includes Paul. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this ion, this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly place. We all battle demons, and this is my point. They, they tempt us to build walls around our souls like a city under siege. They tempt us to darkness and then they haunt us in that darkness. They tempt us with a false salvation, a bit of heaven that turns into hell. Folks, I think, I think folks used to call that idolatry. Now, I think we often call it addiction. It's not just mental illness, but it's like mental illness empowered and infected with evil. I think the Bible calls it sin. And we all wonder, why would God allow such a thing as sin? Why would he allow it? That's a question we're going to wrestle with and we'll address. But if you wonder, why would God allow stinging locusts to inhabit our sin? Why would God let snakes and scorpions inhabit the very place that we hide? Why would God allow demons to infect our darkness? Well... Demons do make you hate the darkness, don't they? They make you hate the darkness, but that's not the same as loving the light. That's still not repentance. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. 
Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. That's where we saw our high priest standing on the altar, appearing to offer himself, making atonement for us. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's 200 million. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. Theon in the Greek, which can also be translated divinity. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and Theon came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. But the fire and smoke and by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, for the power of the horses is in their, their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent. They did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their porneia, their sexual immorality, or, or their thefts. Chapter 9 is followed by an interlude now that contains some strange and outrageous preaching that we'll begin to talk about next week. And then 11.14, we read this. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So the fifth and sixth trumpets are like the first two of these three woes, and no one repents. No one. At the sixth trumpet, John sees 200 million from over the Euphrates. Not from the abyss, but like from over the Euphrates, like armies. Armies would usually invade Israel from the north over the Euphrates. Some have argued then that these were the Romans, because the Roman legion that sacked Jerusalem crushed Jerusalem in 70 AD, had been in camp north of the, the Euphrates. Others have argued that these are the Turks attacking Constantinople in the 15th century. In either scenario, 200 million then must be symbolic of like a heck of a lot, a whole heck of a lot. Hal Lindsey said, well, it's not symbolic, it's, it's literal. And so he argued that this must refer to the Chinese because who else could muster an army of 200 million? But it's not just the soldiers, it's 200 million horses. And he says the horses, well, they must likely be tanks. So 200 million tanks crossing the Euphrates. That's, that's kind of hard to imagine. Maybe it's every army that's ever marched. At the seventh trumpet, loud voices in heaven, they, they quote Psalm 2, it seems. They, they say, why, Psalm 2 is this, why do the nations rage? Answer, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. That's Jesus, whose name means God is salvation. And every ruler of this world advertises himself as salvation, and that's why he makes his soldiers march, just to prove it. Maybe it's every army that, that ever marched and the fact that they're prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year suggests that this has all happened according to plan. Whatever the case, the mounted troops look a little bit like the, the demons that we just saw. Actually, they look like a lion coming at you and a serpent going past you. It's like they pretend to be godly. Sapphire is the color of the, of, the, of, the, of the pavement in the throne room in the book of Exodus. And it's Theon, divinity or holy fire, that comes from the mouth like it comes from the mouth of God in the Old Testament. At the fifth trumpet, we see demons. And at the sixth trumpet, I think we see armies demonized by demons. And rulers of this world pretending to be God. St. Paul wrote this, We battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. The world rulers, or the rulers of this present ion, this present age of, of darkness. You see, it's not just individuals that are demonized, but institutions, patterns of thought, psychologies, sociology, social institutions, all the governments of this world. It's not just individuals, but societies that bind themselves together in covenants of self-centeredness. 
And so, of course, societies and nations are always at war with each other. They worship idols that are not gods, but demons. Now, I know some of you may be a little bit nervous. From my diagram shows Jericho as a Canaanite city that stands condemned, and Jerusalem looks just like Jericho. There's a bizarre stream of thought in American evangelicalism that teaches that it's, well, it's this great sin to criticize Jerusalem or Israel. In fact, it's even to be cursed. It's an utterly bizarre idea promoted by people that seem to be almost entirely unaware that those who most criticized Israel and Jerusalem were named Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Jesus. Matthew 23, Jesus issues seven woes, scathing woes, against the religious leaders of Israel. And then he says this, I send you prophets whom you will kill and crucify so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. In, in Revelation 11, he will refer to Jerusalem as Sodom. Chapter 18, she appears to be Babylon. Verse, verse 2, the dwelling place of demons. And make no mistake, Jesus loves Jerusalem. He absolutely adores Jerusalem. He loves her so much that he will not allow her to remain as she is. As we preached a few weeks ago, Israel was blessed to be a blessing to all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. But Israel did not trust that God is salvation. She trusted that she was salvation, and so she crucified God is salvation just outside her city walls on a tree. She was a covenant of self-interest, only worse, for she did it in the name of God. Sometimes I wonder if this worldly institution that we call the church is nothing more than a covenant of self-interest, a covenant of death. Isaiah 28, Isaiah prophesies the coming of the Messiah to the city of Jerusalem, and then in verse 18 we read this, then your covenant with death, Jerusalem, will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. Do you understand? Sheol is Hades in the Greek, translated hell in, in the English. Sheol is a covenant with death, and death is to be cut off from the life, Sheol begins on the surface of the earth, and Sheol continu can continue, it appears, uh, under the earth after the, the body dies. It's like self-consciousness, and only self-consciousness, a continuous consciousness of being utterly alone, even if constantly harassed by demons. In Revelation 9-6, we read that in those days, we read this, in those days people will seek death and will not find it. I think that may be a reference to Sheol and to the fact that we cannot save ourselves from death with more death, which is seizing control of our own life or our own death. What we need is like the death of death, the second death, which, well, that must be life eternal life. Well, according to Scripture, it appears that death is being trapped in a covenant of self-centeredness, infected with demons under the direction of Apollyon the destroyer. I find it incredibly troubling that the modern American church usually pictures heaven and hell as something like this. Do you see? 
we think heaven, the new Jerusalem, is just a new covenant of self-interest. And the wall between heaven and hell is the boundary between those that have agreed to this covenant before the cutoff date and those that have not. We think heaven is a covenant of those that have chosen to save themselves with their knowledge of good and evil, and hell is a prison for those that have not taken this knowledge and made themselves in the image of God. We think heaven is a covenant to protect our own self-interest, and, and we kind of like the idea that hell is a covenant with death that can never be annulled. And so the judgment of God is not the defeat of evil, but the eternal preservation of evil and all the destroyers of the earth in a place called hell. We think heaven is liking the idea of hell, which is profoundly unkind. Do you see? That picture is not half, half heaven and half hell. It's all hell. But now hear the gospel. I will annul your covenant with death, says the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jerusalem, look! The king is right outside your city walls, hanging on a tree. Jesus was crucified at the sixth hour of the sixth day of the week on the sixth day of creation just outside the walls of Jerusalem as he made atonement for all the children of Adam and no one recognized him. No one repented. Until his blood began to flow. And then a, a thief, a thief cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And a Roman centurion dropped to his knees and confessed, surely this man was the Son of God. He repented. And the children of Adam are still repenting. And the earth shook and the walls uh, they're still tumbling down. That was the end of the sixth day and the beginning of an endless seventh day. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Real quickly, notice that at the seventh trumpet, number one, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Number two, the scene in the, in the throne room in chapters four and five is now happening on the surface of the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's happened. Number three, the destroyers are destroyed. The seventh trumpet is the death of death, not the preservation of death. First Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The, 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 the four. Four. The seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. First Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must, listening, this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Number five, at the last trumpet, the Ark of the Covenant is seen within his temple. The Ark of the Covenant is the judgment seat of God and his temple is the human psyche. Your soul. At the last trumpet, everyone that's anyone repents. <laughs> and how, how did it happen? 
Well, if you're a Christian, you somehow know that it happened on a tree just outside the walls of old Jerusalem at the end of the sixth day, a Friday. And its glory was revealed on a Sunday, an eighth day, which in Jewish thought is like an endless seventh day, a, a Sabbath day. It's also the third day we refer to as, as Easter. The revelation then specifies two woes but not the third. It leaves you to figure that one out. It's such a cool book. The first woe upon Jerusalem is a plague of demons at the fifth trumpet. The second plague upon Jerusalem or upon the world, the second woe, uh, the first woe is a plague of demons. The second woe is a plague of armies at the sixth trumpet. And the third woe is that the one we all just crucified rose from the dead. Is that good news or bad news? In the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is able to cast the evil out of Theoden because he's no longer Gandalf the Grey. He's Gandalf the White. And he's Gandalf the White because he gave his life for his friends, was baptized with water and fire, and rose from the dead on the third day. You know, Tolkien was a devoted Christian, and so, of course, Gandalf was a picture of Christ, and his death and resurrection was a picture, a description of the atonement. We have all sorts of theories of the atonement and how it works. The revelation is all about the atonement, what happens at the, at the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, and seventh bowl. It's the revelation of, of the atonement. At its most basic level, I think the atonement is this the revelation that the king of kings and the lord of lords the commander of god's army is bleeding for you it's kindness it's the kindness of god that conquers the world and makes all things new and it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. That's what does it. Romans 1, Paul describes the wrath of God. You've read Romans. It's all the terrifying verses. Then Romans 2, verse 1, he writes this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, O Adam, for in judging you yourself are judged and stand condemned. Verse 4, do you think nothing of the riches of God's mercy? Do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So if you didn't repent, something must have been keeping you from seeing the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that creates in you a new mind, metanoia. And when you are kind, Christ in you lays siege, it lays siege to the kingdom of hell. Romans 12, verse 19, Paul writes, Beloved, do not avenge, ecticeo yourselves, but rather give place to God's wrath, for it is written, Vengeance, ecticesis, is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's a different way of thinking. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Give him kindness. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Kindness is the third woe and the judgment of God that conquers this world. And I really do at times grieve for the American church, because it seems that so often we are no longer kind. And so, of course, we've lost our power. True power. We have political power. We have legislative power. But not much real power. The New Jerusalem does not look like this, a covenant of self-centeredness. The New Jerusalem looks like this, a covenant of self-sacrifice that forms a communion wherein each person bleeds for all and all bleed for each. The New Jerusalem isn't dead. It's made of living stones. She is a body and a bride, and her gates are always open. Zechariah prophesies, Jerusalem, you will be a city without walls. I will be the fire around you and the glory in your midst. And so how does the kingdom of God, Jerusalem coming down to earth, how does the kingdom of God conquer the kingdoms of this world? How does that happen? 
one person on one side of the wall bleeds for another person on the other side of the wall. And that in, in itself destroys the wall. For in the end, the wall is just a manifestation of an illusion in your own psyche. It's the product of believing a lie spoken by a snake in a garden next to a tree. And Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in order that we would repent, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for you. This is the eternal covenant. This is the great kindness of God. This is the eternal judgment of God. And all your judgments, all the dividing walls of hostility that you have constructed in fear and shame and anxiety and, and pride and self-centeredness, They're an illusion. Repent. Amen. And so, Lord God, I, I think we're happy to confess to you that we have believed a lie, and the lie is that, well, we are salvation, and so we have constructed walls to protect ourselves, and yet the walls keep us from seeing you, the judgment of God, which is God is salvation, Jesus. Lord God, you are better than we thought. You're always better than we thought. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I had a, a, a lot of stories and stuff, and we didn't have time for that. But, and I was kind of like a, a skeptic growing up. I was a science geek, you know, I was a geology major, so I didn't believe a lot of this stuff. But I have seen some pretty freaky things, and I have seen the power of God. And what really amazes me is that when I go back and look at it and analyze it, and even in the moment, I, I've come to realize that the substance of that power is kindness. <laughs> It's kindness. So may you believe the gospel and be kind. In Jesus' name, amen.